Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journeys. So the, the cost of failure is not just bankruptcy, but the cost of failure is, uh, is human suffering. And that's the particularly poignant piece about doing social entrepreneurship. Particularly if the, if the beneficiaries are, uh, are in a situation where, you know, where they, the, the, the harm is really painful. How am I going to make money doing it? So there's always a tension. And uh, the beauty is that if you come up with a breakthrough type of solution, which creates a market that failed before, uh, then, you, then you can have it both ways. I'm very excited today to introduce Ian McMillan, Professor of Entrepreneurship at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Ian, known to hundreds of business school graduates and friends as Mac, is the co-author of the Social Entrepreneur Playbook an excellent field guide to setting up a social entrepreneurial business, which has many powerful frameworks and tools to help social entrepreneurs test, set up and grow successful social businesses. The playbook was written with the support and feedback of hundreds of social entrepreneurs in the field, which makes it a really practical tool for social entrepreneurs interested in growing their business. Ian is a pioneering business thinker. More than 20 years ago, together with Rita McGrath, he developed discovery-based planning for startup businesses, predating the ideas that have been popularised now in the lean startup. This is a great opportunity to be able to speak to Ian today for Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs podcast. So what, what led you to, 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 to write this book? Well, we'd had some... Uh, if you go way back a few years, I was... Uh, basically uh, looking at getting to the end of my runway and uh, decided that if I looked at what had been accomplished by me in the past uh, few decades, uh, it was very little of, of value. I mean, I wrote a few books and articles and stuff like that. So at about the same time, uh, Jim Thompson, who's my co-author, was in discussions with this woman in uh, Zambia who was uh, busy trying to build a program to attack the serious sort of malnutrition problems in Northwest Zambia. And we decided what we were going to do is do some field work, uh, starting with her enterprise, looking at what does it actually take to create businesses that accomplish social purposes. And that sounded to me like something that would be a slightly better contribution than the, the, you know, the stream of academic crap that I published before then. <laughs> so the, 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 the aspiration was for a, a more practical uh, kind of uh, book, I suppose. Yeah, well, you know, there, there, I think there's two components. One is that many of these social problems, you have a, a market failure. There's huge demand and no supplies, you know, so something is deeply wrong. And, uh, and, you know, the solution is not easy. And uh, sort of playing catch-up by running in there and, you know, throwing funds and resources at something just to, you know, just to, to, to patch it uh, is not productive. And in many cases what 
what it does is it creates dependency as opposed to uh, self-sufficiency. So you know you you have a, a drought, and then come the food trucks, and then after a while people stop bothering about you know trying to farm. They just sit and wait for the food trucks. And so what you have now is a string of people who are dependent as opposed to self-sufficient. What what Elona was trying to do in you know in the book. She said, let's give these people the wherewithal, wherewithal to uh, grow their own food, which was chicken, raising chickens. And, you know, if you look at what's happening in Zambia today, uh, in that region, as a result of that, there are about, oh, maybe two and a half thousand uh, people farming chickens, employing people, feeding themselves, uh, putting meat into the market that just wasn't there before. And... Uh, you have a fairly vibrant little mini industry going instead of people staying around with tin cups waving the cups at passing cars. Yes, yes. I, I guess you, you brought uh, with you decades of uh, insight and study of entrepreneurial ventures. Looking at social businesses and social ventures, what struck you when you first looked at, 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 at the challenges of, 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 of operating and building a social business? Well, you know, the, the market failure problem is uh, is one of the major issues. You, 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 there is a, um, to phrase it like the economist might put it, if, uh, if there was an obvious solution, someone would already have started the business. Right. And so these are intractable problems, and they're very, very challenging, and they're fraught with uncertainty. You know, you, you don't know market in many cases you don't know whether the product's going to work you don't know. you don't have supply systems you don't have infrastructure I mean there's a there's a host of, of factors that uh, just make it a very very uncertain uh, project so one of the things that we kind of realized early on in the program is that uh, uh, the probability of failure is pretty high you know, if it was easy, there'd be a bunch of people out there making money doing it. So you need to go into it with a strong understanding that, you know, this may well not work. And what that does is it causes you to be very circumspect about, you know, laying out resources. And, uh, and it causes you to be very circumspect about going in... Uh, sort of helping temporarily then running out of resources and then you leave behind people who are you know who just left high and dry so one of the interesting features is uh, as we look at you know going into a program now one of the things we ask is if we go in we need to understand that there's a high likelihood that it might not work so we need to plan how to get out before we even go in and that's perverse but uh, the whole, you know, the, the metaphor we use is you have to leave behind the light footprint. Ah, that's very interesting. You don't want to abandon a bunch of people that you've been trying to help to become dependent on, uh, you know, your project, and then the project doesn't work. So it's kind of how do I, how do I throw myself into a project with maximum enthusiasm at the same time pragmatically realizing that uh, you may have to leave and therefore your entry needs to be sort of flavored in such a way that uh, when you leave 
if you plan to get out before you even get in. Right, right. That's very interesting. And I think that's really uh, you know, quite, quite an determining feature of this type of social entrepreneurship uh, activity, particularly if you're trying to tackle a big problem. Yes, yes. Um, I, I, I certainly like to come back to that. I'm just wondering if you could give me a little bit of, the, tell me the story of how, how you, you, you came to, to write the book itself. I understand that you, uh, the approach was, uh, it was itself <laughs> a, a social venture and certainly a very collaborative one. ideas evolve? Were there a few key things that emerged that may have surprised you or certainly brought you in a different direction? We, we know, for, for instance, one of the things that we were really pleased by but uh, uncertain going into is the whole concept of you know, the tough love test. People really resonated with the tough love test idea. That you sit down and, and uh, at the end of each phase of the development of your plan and your enterprise for that matter, you ask yourself some really hard-nosed questions. And uh, we felt that, you know, this approach sounded a little bit kind of uh, uh, unkind, uh, let's call it that, but people really resonated with it. So what we did is we, we put a lot more effort and energy into designing the tough love test. And then the other place where people really... Uh, uh, resonated was uh, the whole idea of looking at the sort of socio-political milieu in which you're operating and really beginning to think about who, uh, who is going to support you, who's going to be against you, who are the people that you really need and could care less about you. We had, had that as a relatively short chapter and then uh, as we got the feedback we realized that this is something that uh, the, the people in the field said was was really missing in a lot of the stuff that they read. So the guy, the idea of you know the great white knight going charging in on their charger with the with the armor gleaming uh, and, and having accolades as they charge down the road is, is you know quite frankly uh, as much a fairy tale as a metaphor. <laughs> that's that's, that, that's yeah, very interesting. I certainly this is quite quite a substantive uh, uh, part of the book. Look, looking at that, what 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 is the fundamental question that needs to be addressed there? Well, the, I think the key thing is is uh, the, the way that the chapter set up is you do what for want of a, a shorter, less academic. 
pandemic to you need to do this think about who the stakeholders are who's going to benefit if you won and who's going to suffer if you won and uh, who do we really really need who uh, make who could perhaps care less about me so you know in one of the projects what we needed to do was bring on board a bunch of uh, of programmers uh, and we had to bring in programmers into the country in which we were operating and the, the person in charge of giving work permits could care less you know and so your whole enterprise now is held up and, and at risk because uh, somebody who what we call a needed indifferent continued to be indifferent and so that little mapping of who's going to win who, who do you absolutely have to have support from and who's going to win and who's going to lose allows you to think about what the origins are of the, the subsequent social politics it's a very simple little tale, but a very powerful one. And uh, I mean, from there, you can begin to think a little bit about, well, you know, who's going to oppose me? Can I do anything about it? And uh, and can I see, can I find allies that could help me cope with the opposition? And then how do I motivate the needed indifference? Right, right. So, in your experience, is this a, a, an important challenge, an important issue? The whole question of uh, the context, this, this, you know, the socio-economic and social-political context. Well, I think it's uh, the feedback that we got from the field is that this is this is the this is the very big, very important under-attended piece. Yes, and what, what's the danger? What happens too often, do you see? Well, what happens is people go charging down the road and then they find uh, that they're blocked by opponents. Yeah, so so the, the, I think the point here is that if you think about any set of circumstances where conditions have prevailed for a long time, like people are always hungry or people are always sick or people are always getting diarrhea or whatever the case might be, um, what, what emerges from that is there are people who end up benefiting as a result. And now you turn up with a solution, and uh, in many ways this problem may have prevailed for hundreds of years. I mean, if you take uh, contaminated water and you go into little villages in Africa or India or Latin America, whatever the case may be, Children are always dying of gastric diseases. It's part of life there. And uh, you might have uh, 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 what they call a, a sort of uh, tribal healer who you know, basically generates income from providing what's essentially inadequate so-called medicines. And these often are very powerful and influential people in their communities. You walk in there with a magical solution uh, they're not going to like it. So, you know, you're going to run into resistance from those people who, despite the the, the the sort of social malaise, have found ways of benefiting. And if you if you think that they're going to, you know, cheer when you come in and not try to stop you, you know, have another think about that. In many situations, government officials, corrupt government officials, are benefiting. And uh, you know, you're not going to be. Uh, you know, welcomed uh, uh, coming in there with something that's going to basically cut off their source of uh, illicit income. 
In, in any organization you need to build support systems in a way uh, as an entrepreneur or increasingly even as an entrepreneurial team people support you and help you how important is that for a social entrepreneur uh, well it's no less important uh, in, in the sense that you're talking about winning over local people in the community yeah. uh, well, the other thing, if you mention support systems, what you often find is that uh, uh, you, you know, in a, in a more established world like uh, Europe, uh, where uh, um, you, you're doing something that's strictly a business proposition where you're selling a product, there are all sorts of systems you can depend on. There are suppliers. There are... Uh, there are distribution channels, there are transportation systems, there are organizations that will tell you whether people should get credit or not. Uh, when you're going into a space which is uh, characterized by you know, deep social uh, dysfunctionality, many of those systems just simply don't exist. We had, we had a look at one project in uh, Lesotho where somebody decided what they were going to do is uh, distribute uh, medicines and vaccines by motorbike because the roads in Lesotho are you know, pretty bad. And while you might not be able to get a, a four-wheel drive vehicle or four-wheel vehicle down that road, you can take a motorbike and if it's really, really tough, you can, you can push it. Uh, but uh, what they didn't take into account is the fact that, you know, when the motorbike breaks down, someone's got to be able to fix it. So they created a small fleet of these vehicles, and then when they started to... Uh, this thing with MC stopping. Uh, when they started to, to uh, uh, look around for somebody who could repair them, they couldn't find anyone, and so they ended up with... Uh, pile of vehicles that became either rust collectors or dust collectors. <laughs> yes. I mean, one of the, the, the areas that I found very interesting in the book is the whole, uh, I guess, is the, the amount of attention you pay to pressure testing, what you call pressure testing, your startup idea. Um, and I wonder if you could talk about that a little. Is, is there a danger that in the uh, enthusiasm to get a project off the ground, to seeing an opportunity, seeing a market failure, shall we say, that one might neglect steps in terms of uh, analysing and thinking through and really testing the assumptions upon what your, 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 your idea is? Well, you know, I think the basic temptation is, is people... You know, they ingenuously and desperately want to do good. Um, 
there's a tendency to sort of say, well, if this is looming as a problem, let's let's work it out when we get there. And, and when you get there, you find you can't work it out. And all that energy and effort and the resources which could have been better spent elsewhere are lost. So the pressure testing is to keep on finding ways of, of uh, sort of spotting where you're particularly vulnerable and saying, well, can we test that before we commit too many resources? Yes, and, and, and the, the, the whole question of funding is, is obviously one which is changing quite fast. And there's certainly more funding opportunities available for social business, but it's, it's still a uh, relatively early stage compared to f financial... That's the biggest problem. I mean, to me, without doubt, uh, if you really think about it, raising funds for an enterprise like this is very, very difficult. And, and this is why in the... Uh, you know, in the in the uh, book, we, we we talk about uh, um, aspirations cascades. What a lovely long-winded term! No, I, re I really like that framework in in terms of the different stages of, I guess, sustainability. Yeah. So you start off wanting to make profits, and if you can't, well, you say, well, let's see if we can at least generate revenues. And if you can't, can you at least cover some of your costs? And, if you, and so what you go down is you, you start off with high aspirations, and then you work down. And the nice thing is that even if you end up as a charity where you're totally dependent on you know charitable funding, uh, you've done the best you can. And what we found is that, and this happens often, is that the very discipline of thinking about how do I make a profit causes you to be much, much more parsimonious. So that even if you end up being a charity, it's a much more parsimonious charity than not thinking through, you know, what, what can we do to drive up revenues or create revenues or to drive down costs before we even start. That's interesting. What do you think is the logic behind that? Well, it's just the discipline. You know, you've got to sit down now and sort of say, well, here's my prediction of uh, who's going to buy it and uh, what it's going to cost to deliver it. What can I do to trim that out? So if you look at Elona's case, what she did that was really interesting is, is uh, instead of buying a mixing plant, brand new mixing plant, to mix chicken feed, she started off with hand mixing. She paid 12 men with shovels to mix by hand. And then she bagged by hand, and then she went out and tried to sell these bags of, uh, of chicken feed uh, in uh, nearby villages and kind of uh, created a stream of, uh, uh, you know, of, of, of customers. Then when she had a stream of customers, and that was starting to become substantial, she went out and she bought second-hand equipment, which she imported from South Africa. She didn't get a spanking new piece of stainless steel plant. She got a, you know, a couple of grotty, uh, 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 rusty mixes and patched them up. And, and, and then, you know, eventually, and at the, uh, recently, what she installed was a major modern Swiss pelletizing machine. But she had the revenues to, to justify the assets. So the basic philosophy is, you know, don't you dare have an asset on your balance sheet with a fixed cost on your income statement. Uh, unless you can point to revenues that justify it. And it's that, that discipline of forcing 
do I do it at absolute minimum cost in order to make a profit, to squeeze a profit out that leads to much more parsimonious enterprises? That's interesting. And one of the ideas, that, and I think you've written about this elsewhere, is of development as, I'm not sure how you, the, the language you use, but essentially it's, it's a learning model, as it were. Uh, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the, it may be tied into the idea of, of the, the necessity of failure and how to, to think about failure in terms of, you know, uh, new ideas or parts of a project or, or using failure as a, uh, I suppose, or using testing, which, which, which includes failure. In the planning system that we recommend, the discovery-driven planning. That's it, yeah. The whole idea is to, is to identify very bloody-mindedly all the assumptions you're making. Find the place where you're most vulnerable to your assumptions being wrong, and then find ways of testing at absolute lowest cost. Uh, whether you're right or not. And one of the things that we're looking at now, which is, is a, it's once again a sort of perverse way of looking at the world, is that if I'm looking at a, a, a potential project, uh, I might try to identify critical assumptions, the most sensitive assumptions, and then see if there's a way of proving I'm wrong. Now, so typically what a manager does is try to prove that they're right. But here what we're saying is if we can show that we did wrong, then we don't need to bother about this project anymore. We can put our energy and efforts on something else. And so the idea is to try to learn your way into what the true solution is. And uh, that may be different from, you know, where you started. But you're still helping people. That's quite a big change in uh, perspective. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm, this is a very different, I mean, this, this entity, this sort of social entrepreneurial entity is very, it's a different uh, species, so it needs different treatment. What is it about the, the, the books, let's say the Lean Startup, or any of these books, which, you know, uh, work with, with, with profit-making companies, um, that won't get you where you need to go with a social business? Mm -hmm. Sustainability means you have to keep on, you know, 
keep keep this thing operating with a self-sufficiency is eventually, if you're lucky, the people can handle it themselves. And and so what you need to have is a very clear goal of how many people am I going to help and how. As one dimension, and the other dimension is uh, how am I going to make money doing it. And so there's always a tension. And uh, the beauty is that if you come up with a breakthrough type of a solution, which creates a market that failed before, uh, then you then you can have it both ways. And that's uh, that's a rare event. So uh, you know the the whole idea of hey we go, we are going to make this work is uh, is really admirable. But there are some cases where despite your very best efforts, it's not going to work. And then what's going to happen is that as a result of that, people may suffer. So the the cost of failure is not just bankruptcy court. The cost of failure is uh, is human suffering, and that's the particularly poignant piece about doing social entrepreneurship. That's Particularly if the if the beneficiaries are uh, are in a situation where you know where they, the, the the harm is really painful. That's very interesting. Um, I just want to go back to one of the points. I spent too many years in a business school <laughs> um, and, uh, and writing case studies in another business school. Um, 
so clearly I, I, I see value in developing frameworks, developing ways of, I mean frameworks really, uh, in, in, in areas. But it's, it seemed to me that this is one of the most valuable things about this book is there's so many frameworks and tables and just useful ways, sometimes quite simple but also, you know, well, well thought out ways of, of looking at, at questions uh, that are important questions for social entrepreneurs. How important is it, do you think, given the extra objective function, as you mentioned, how important is it to try and map out and develop frameworks for social entrepreneurs? Well, I think the biggest problem is that if you give people a bunch of frameworks, uh, they, they don't want to do it. What I want to do is get the business started and then, you know, happily fail. And not happily fail, but dejectedly uh, fail because they just didn't want to do the work up front. So I think frameworks are important. What we, you know, if you look at our books, there's a lot of frameworks there. And um, one of the things that we did is to sort of say, you know, one of the, the minimum frameworks that people really should need to do. And then, you know, and that's what appeared in the book. But, you know, I get people getting in touch with me all the time saying, you know, I've got this great uh, social entrepreneurship idea, and, you know, what I'd like to do is have you spend a few hours talking to me about it. Because uh, I quite profligate for the use of my time. And uh, the fundamental thing that I do is I say, well, here's the book. Fill out the frameworks, send us the, send us the tables, and uh, we can have a look at the tables, and then when you come and see us, we know what you're talking about. And I'd say about 80% of the people never come back. That's interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm very nearly there. I'm, I'm mindful of the time. Just on the funding issue, and I'm just thinking as you, you single that out, what can be done or what needs to be done to, to help fund? Is it, can anything be done to help the funding problem of social entrepreneurs? Well, I think what's starting to emerge is a sense in the communities that... Uh, you know, that there are cases where we might not be making the kind of profits that you would normally expect from an ongoing business, but uh, we'll set aside, a, you know, a special set of funds to do that. But, you know, the reality is that you're in the market there, and if you, if you need resources, uh, the, uh, uh, the person providing funding can get, can get much better funds in a, you know, in a in a, a less constrained market, they'll do it with their feet. So I think the, the big push that I see coming is that uh, people like uh, those that fund charities and uh, and NGOs are going to be able to start be, be looking at what we're trying to do here because the book really doesn't just... Uh, the ultimate is maybe you make a profit. But what the book does is even if you're not going to make a profit, you know, even if you end further down the aspiration cascade, the uh, disbursement of whatever funds you get are going to be uh, much more efficiently used. So my expectation is that uh, as uh, you know, as, as uh, um, this phenomenon unfolds more and more, uh, people from foundations and people from charities are basically going to say, show me your tables. Show me, uh, show me your discoveries of plans. Show me what you guys are going to be doing, uh, you know, with this money we bring you. And let's set some targets up and let's set up some milestones. And we're not going to just give you a grant of a million dollars. 
we'll give you a preliminary grant of uh, $10,000 to show that you, uh, you, you can earn the right to get $100,000 uh, to earn the right to get a million. So that's going is, is to happen, I think, is that all that funding that's going into the, uh, you know, the traditional not-for-profits is going to start to find purchase in places where you can walk in and say, fill my tin cup once and you'll never have to fill it again, because this is the plan that I'm going to do it. That's excellent. That's excellent. That's I guess takes me on to the very last question, which in a way was part of the, the, the very beginning. I mean, how has this book been received? I mean, I, I certainly I've, I've seen there's been a few reviews on Amazon, and I've seen some press and things. But to me, it seems like a breakthrough. Um, and I, I was just wondering how, how well it's been received generally, and, and what your plans are to. Uh, is there any further developments, that, uh, and are you working on a continuation of this? I mean, it's very comprehensive. <laughs> listening to the inspiring social entrepreneur podcast i hope you found this interview inspiring please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts